Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. And also not that, too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 40, Control, recorded on November 22nd, 2022. Team 22, if you're on it, you know what I'm talking about. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature, and our outro is Late Bloomer. We'll begin with some corrections. Uh, In episode 35, Return, with terrific guest Drew Hagen, we wondered what type of lawyer Donald Gennaro was. The novel tells us his background is in investment banking on page 49, and he may have been the type of lawyer who helps set up like limited liability partnerships and articles of incorporation and that sort of stuff. So not just a finance lawyer as we thought, though it is not entirely specified what types of law he does practice. We're told Cowan Swain and Ross has high-tech clients that frequently need capitalization, and Gennaro aided with that, and specifically in the fundraising for InGen on page 50. And that's perhaps a point of clarification rather than a correction, but... Uh, there you have it. And as we were a bit confused on the copy Venom, possibly because there is the source text, the novel, and then the expanded cinematic universe, and then there's all these discussions on what's canon with the film and, and the other films and the shows and the games and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so it's easy to get a little confused on, on the Venoms and things like that. In the novel on page 26, we're told the Compi Venom, quote, seemed to be a neurotoxic poison related to Cobra Venom, although more primitive in structure. In the film, I had no idea about this until very recently, but the little critters uh, are all Compies. Uh, they're not the novel's Procomsignathus, but they're the distantly related Compsignathus, upon which the Procomsignathus gets its name. And so then here's, I guess, a third correction, uh, and it's a neat correction to the film The Lost World in 1995. In the film, the paleontologist character Robert Burke calls the Compi a Compsignathus triassicus, which isn't a thing yet, anyhow. Uh, the Procomsignathus' species name is Triassicus, and recall in the novel Jurassic Park, paleobotanist Ellie Sattler also considers a fictitious species Procomsignathus amasicus, but the animal in the film is not a Procomsignathus, just a Compsignathus. As a little point of information, Compsignathus longipes means elegant jaw with long legs, whereas Procomsignathus triassicus means before Compsignathus in the Triassic. In Amasicus, is fictitious, and it means nothing to me. All right, and that is our news. The first article is from 2012, so it's not new, but it's about Stegosaurus, so it's going to make it into the show anyhow. The Smithsonian Magazine released an article summarizing the latest understanding of that mythological second brain in the Stegosaurus' hips. Do you remember hearing about how Stegosaurs had a second brain or a nerve center in their hips back in the old days? Well, this column set the record straight. Contrary to popular myth, Stegosaurs did not have a butt brain says the article. Quote, the double dinosaur brain myth goes on to say, quote, for decades, popular articles and books claimed that the armor-plated stegosaurus and the biggest of the sauropod dinosaurs had second brains in their rumps. These dinosaurs, it was said, could reason a posteriori, thanks to the extra mass of tissue. It was a cute idea, but a totally wrong hypothesis that actually underscores a different dinosaur mystery. The article says that the myth began in the 1800s when Othniel Charles Marsh, who we were introduced to in Jurassic Park as one of the principal forefathers in North American paleontology, was studying a chimerosaurus when he found a canal in the vertebrae over the hips that was enlarged into an expanded canal that was larger than the cavity for the dinosaur's brain. 
This is both because the, the canal would be big, but also because the brain is also is very small. Quote, in 1881, Marsh described a similar expansion in the neural canal of Stegosaurus as, quote, a posterior brain case. The article relates that sauropods and stegosaurs have tiny heads, even tinier craniums, and relative to their body sizes, they were so small, it was unlikely that they were very smart. Therefore, this second brain or similar organ might, quote, have helped coordinate their back legs and tails. The article summarizes that no, the sacral brain space is not a brain. Quote, this distinct kind of cavity is only seen in stegosaurs and sauropods and is different than the type of typical expansion of the neural canal. There is something else other than nerves filling that space. Frustratingly, though, we don't really know what that something is, says the article. The present most realistic idea, says this 2012 article, is that, quote, the space was similar to a feature in the hips of birds called a glycogen body. These store energy-rich glycogen in the hips. Now, glycogen isn't a cool new biotech startup company. It's the stored form of glucose or sugar, which is the body's main source of energy. If birds do it, perhaps stegosaurs and sauropods did it too. It's unknown, actually, what, what birds even do with these glycogen storages in their hips as well. So uh, why this is happening in stegosaurs and sauropods isn't any clearer by discovering that it is similar to some birds or, or to birds. But it wasn't a brain, that's for sure. The article summarizes, they know that it's not a brain and also, quote, we don't yet know what the biological role the feature plays. Dinosaurs didn't have hindbrains, but the significant spaces in the hips of stegosaurs and sauropods still puzzles paleontologists. In the second article today, another stegosaur piece. This appeared on the radar thanks to a stegosaur-centric episode of the Common Descent podcast, where they discovered a wound which suggested an allosaur died from a, quote, deep stab to the crotch delivered by a spiky tail of a stegosaur. The pubis received a direct wound that was deep, cone-shaped, and completely penetrated the solid pubic bone, which the paper says is, quote, a sign of a powerful blow. <laughs> It's theorized, though I can't tell if it's from direct evidence or from fossil evidence or not, that the wound became infected with fatal results. Probably this infection spread upwards into the soft tissue attached uh, near the thigh muscles and the adjacent intestines and reproductive or organs, says the article. Stegosaurus was named the culprit because, quote, the wound matches the shape and dimensions of spikes found on the barbed tails of stegosaurus specimens excavated from the same stratum as the victim. Quote, the scientists also noted that the strike was delivered with great force from below, an angle that could have been exploited most easily by Stegosaurus, which brandished a spiky tail not by swinging it from side to side, they say, but by jabbing it like a sword, which is pretty dramatic if you ask me. Can you imagine a Stegosaur jabbing its tail? The, they quote paleontologist Robert Bacher, again, another paleontologist named and introduced to us in Jurassic Park, who likens a Stegosaur tail to a monkey's tail with no locking joints built for three-dimensional combat. Now, my terrific guest, Rebecca Hunt Foster, suggested she felt that the stegosaurs just swayed their tails, that that would be definitely enough to thwart a rear-side attack. And to me, I feel like I'm not a paleontologist, but like modern big hunters, mostly big cats, leap on their prey, climb on them, and use their incredible hooked claws to latch on and drag their prey down. For a spike to jab up into an allosaurus pelvis, I wonder if an allosaur wasn't also trying to climb onto the stegosaur, weigh it down, using its sharp, hooked raptorial claws to latch on and drag down the stegosaur, perhaps even so another allosaur might then be able to pile on and subdue their prey. Once an allosaur is in position above a spiky and thrashing animal like a stegosaur looking to weigh it down, I could see the spikes thrusting upwards very easily. These injuries found in bones are so fascinating because they offer a glimpse into the animal's behavior, which the bones often do not in and of themselves. 
that allosaurs are found with injuries from stegosaurs, in fact, does indicate that the behavior would be preying upon stegosaurs. These two species definitely conflicted with each other while they were alive. So that's a confirmation that can only be proved by these injuries. It's a little too bad one allosaur had to get a fatal kick in the crotch to prove the point, though. All right, with these corrections and then the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Joining me today is Dr. W. Scott Persons IV, colloquially known as Scott, who is an author and dinosaur paleontologist and curator at the Miggs Brown Museum of Natural History and assistant professor of the College of Charleston in South Carolina. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, Scott and I met at the Pearson International Airport at baggage claim. The airline got our luggage mixed up, and I wound up with the fossilized dishium of an allosaurus, and he wound up with my carry-on bag filled with Sudoku puzzles and my go-to airplane book, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, but we exchanged the, 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 <laughs> the bags back, and uh, you got your bones, and I got my books. A good trade. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going over your curriculum vitae, and I couldn't help but notice that you have been excavating stuff in it looks like texas and montana and wyoming and mongolia and argentina and obviously alberta as well and then did i see you're in the galapagos islands too uh, i was not in the galapagos okay. Islands doing a uh, fossil excavation uh but i've i've been to the galapagos Islands. yeah that's interesting so that is like your passport must be fascinating uh, it, it's got a lot of, lot of stamps in it but uh the galapagos island trip was back when i was in uh uh, an undergraduate student. So I've since had to update and get a new passport. Oh, no. That must be the hardest part is uh, having to trade it out and uh, lose all the stamps, I guess. That's true. That's too bad. Your, your field work, uh, you must have a lot of memories from, from all those travels. Uh, what are some of the, I guess, exciting highlights that come from your, your time out in the field? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, my very, very first real fossil hunting trip, the first time I remember finding a fossil, which was just the, the just, just about the least impressive fossil you could find. It was a little sliver of bone that was kindly identified for me as being a, a fish rib. Um, I think that was just sort of shorthand for a little bone we can't identify, but good job, kid. <laughs> um, and I actually I found that in, in Australia at, at Dinosaur Cove. And, and the dino aficionados there listening to this, which probably the majority of your audience, I don't know, uh, may know that Dinosaur Cove is the place where uh, Leonosaura uh, was, was found. Um, and my family wound up uh, there. My dad was on a business trip going to Australia. He took the family. We went to a Melbourne Museum, and the dinosaur hall was closed. Mm. Uh, but my mom, and understand I'm an only child, uh, my mom felt so terrible for me that she went up to the front desk and basically demanded to speak with the paleontologist that was there. And, and luckily for us, uh, that turned out to be a really, really nice guy. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Rich. He brought us uh, into back, showed us all these specimens, and again, then gave us directions and permission to go uh, and join some of the folks that were down there at, at Dinosaur uh, Cove. And that's where I found this, this little rock that's just got this little um, shiny sliver of bone uh, that we'll say is a fish rib. Okay. Um, but my first, uh, first dinosaur hunting expedition uh, was actually in, it was Jurassic, it was in uh, the Morrison Formation uh, out in Wyoming, and that was with uh, Dr. Robert Bacher. And uh, first day we were out there uh, in the field, I'm super nervous, super exciting. Dr. Bacher brings us out uh, to the outcrop and we all sort of fan out to listen to him give his introductory spiel. He tells us to, to take a seat and I sit down and he's, he's starting to talk 
and I set my hand down. And I notice I've avoided putting my hand on, on a local cactus, but tucked in right next to the rock beside where I'm sitting is this little vertebrae. And, and I, I pick this vertebrae up and, and I look at it and I get really excited and I interrupt Dr. Robert Bacher <laughs> mid-spiel to say, hey, would you take a look at this? And it was uh, one vert from um, the little herbivorous dinosaur, uh, Othniel, Othniliosaurus. All right. That's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. And I think Othnelia, I think it's referred to as Othnelia, maybe they updated to Othniliosaurus in, in Jurassic Park is one of the dinosaurs mm -hmm. uh, that they meet uh, er early on. I was just looking into that one a little while ago, and it looks like it may have been synonymized with Nanosaurus or something like that. It, it has been synonymized with a lot of different critters <laughs> uh, over the ages. Yeah, we were laughing about uh, how it was named after uh, Marsh, and then it was also Marsh, named yes. after Cope in one of, the, one of the iterations and stuff like that. But I, yeah, so who knows? Well, I guess things are always being reclassified all the time, aren't they? They are. We're challenged anyhow. Marsh, there's, there's a long history of things being uh, overly split and in some cases overly lumped uh, in order to, to snub the other one. Mm -hmm. We were just hearing about a new type of allosaur species and then I think there was just a new despletosaurus, wasn't there? Yes. I think it was just, so they're, they're still a little bit of very, <laughs> they don't have to always have a new, a new name, but a new species. That's kind of neat. Absolutely. So where are you going to next? What's the next, uh, next field trip? Uh, the next planned field trip is uh, back out to uh, Wyoming. Uh, this time we're digging in the Lance Formation, so upper uppermost uh, Cretaceous. Um, going out there with a, a select group of students from the College of Charleston. We are visiting a number of sites, but one of the places we're particularly excited about is a nodosaur quarry. So nodosaur is an armored dinosaur. It's not a um, it's not Ankylosaurus. Which is, which is the kind of ankylosaurid that we've got there uh, in, in the lands. Um, we're not entirely certain what nodosaur it is. Nodosaur that ought to be there is an animal called Denversaurus. Um, but for various reasons, we don't think our critter is Denversaurus. The shape of the osteoderms, the armor plates from the back, just doesn't match up with what has uh, been described. The little element of the skull that we've got looks kind of different uh, too. So we're heading back to the quarry where those bones were dug out, uh, and we're excited to hopefully find more of it. We're also particularly excited about the specimen because it's one of those fossils that is actually two fossils in one. Some of our bones are, of course, bones from the nosaur, but then they've also got on them some trace fossils. Okay. It actually has got a, um, a large bite wound, uh, we think, from a, from a tyrannosaur because okay. the hole, the puncture is so tremendous, and there's evidence of, of a serrated edge, which basically rules out uh, the crocodile forms that we've got around. Uh, at this point in time. Mm -hmm. So we think we're looking at potentially a, uh, a Tyrannosaur kill site. That is something. The, the trace fossils are so fascinating in that way. A Tyrannosaur could easily bite through pretty much anything, right? <laughs> is that what the, the story well, that's goes? Interesting. It's a thing about it. It's a big misconception with regards to uh, Ankylosaur armored dinosaur um, osteoderms. Uh, there's sort of a general sense, and you read it all the time, oh, these dinosaurs are built like tanks, or they make a comparison to a, a turtle. Mm -hmm. The implication there would be that they resist attack by having armor that is just so gosh darn thick, nothing can, can bite through it. 
And when you actually look at a lot of the osteoderms, they're not incredibly thick. They're not as thick as some of the bones that we know a Tyrannosaurus got the jaw strength to smash its way through. As it turns out, if you want to resist a Tyrannosaur attack, the most uh, economical way to do it is not to just develop incredibly, incredibly thick armor. You don't become a turtle. You become a hedgehog or you become a porcupine. Right. And a lot of these osteoderms have got very pronounced keels on them. And in life, the osteoderms would be covered in a sheath of material that's called keratin, same stuff your fingernails are made of, same stuff that covers the horns of a, of a cow, uh, the, the claws of a cat, etc. And that would have made those keels on the osteoderm actually really uh, sharp. So these are particularly uh, prickly, sharp-edged dinosaurs, so that, yeah, Tyrannosaurus would have had the jaw strength to crack open uh, the armor, mm -hmm. but the act of doing so would have shredded its own mouth. Okay. Well, they looked unappealing to bite anyhow, but <laughs> that makes it even more so. Well, that's fascinating. So with um, with a podcast like this, uh, we like to, to start with uh, the concept of Jurassic Park as like a common ground that we can all share in. And then spin sure. wildly out of control from uh, out of out of that space. But uh, it's okay. a good place to start, as, as any. So, with the novel and the movie, have um, have you fond memories of, of of either reading the book or seeing the film, or, or um... oh, abs absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, I'm sure you've had so many paleontologists on on this show before that'll tell you the, the the same thing. So, I'll get the basics over over quickly. I'm I'm always asked by people. Do you like Jurassic Park? Because they're they're afraid that it's like you know I sit down and I watch and I'm just standing there pulling my hair out, um, frustrated uh, by the scientific inaccuracies that that are on the screen, and there certainly are some some hair pulling, uh, cringing uh, moments from from a scientific pr uh, perspective, and those moments have certainly increased in frequency as the franchise has gone on, but I I do sincerely believe that the original Jurassic Park uh, film did an incredible service for uh, paleontology. Um, it, it really sort of raised the bar of expectation mm -hmm. amongst what uh, the, the, the common person knows about dinosaurs. Now when I walk into a classroom, everybody knows what Velociraptor basically is. Everybody knows that dinosaurs were the ancestors of birds. And so we've got that new baseline. I have to build up to it. I can start from there as, as a jumping off point. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have just incredibly fond memories of uh, going to see Jurassic Park uh, in theaters. Um, I did read, um, this is podcast, in, I'm, I'm on the Zoom <laughs> video here making air quotes around read, because of course a novel came out when I was in like uh, first grade. Um, and I've got very fond memories then of my father reading the novel uh, to me. Okay. Uh, they're, they're mostly fond memories. Um, I don't, you, you told me you guys are at the part in, 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 in the story where uh, Grant and the kids are heading off uh, into the park, mm -hmm. right? Okay, they've right. just sort of been separated. So you haven't yet come to, I mean, spoilers? Uh, Nedry's death scene. So Nedry dies, and then the T-Rex uh, eats the Land Cruisers, and then... Uh, oh, so you, you've, yes. already had, you've already done Nedry's Just death recently, scene. yes. Okay, all right, no, no, no spoilers. I, I recall there's this really graphic depiction of Nedry there being blind and, and coming to the realization that he's holding in his hands his mm -hmm. own entrails. Um, and I, I remember as a kid that really stuck out at me, um, such that when that scene came up in the movie, 
um, I, I covered my eyes. I didn't <laughs> want to see that happen. And of course, uh, Spielberg didn't uh, give you that, that graphic depiction uh, mm -hmm. on screen. Uh, but I didn't know that until the, the second go through. Yeah, if uh, you don't know what to, <laughs> I can imagine anticipating it and worrying about that for sure. I thought uh, what really struck me back then and probably still today about the whole experience of, of watching the film was that, and, and the same with the novel as well, is that it was, um, you know, up to that point, everything in terms of dinosaur consumption and mediated dinosaurs were very childish or geared to like grade two, you know what I mean? And uh, what I loved it about it the most was that it gave dinosaurs kind of a more mature or grown-up feel. Like, it wasn't a story for, for kids. And so you got to look at the gravity and awesomeness of dinosaurs as opposed to just, uh, uh, you know, learning about their stats or something like that. And, um, you know, I was I was hungry for that. And, and uh, obviously, the, the Brachiosaur gives you that majestic and awesome perspective of what it's like to be in the, in the presence of something so big. The sick triceratops gives you uh, like some empathy towards the animals. You get to get up close to it and still be safe with it. And then the tyrannosaur gives you a sense of a perspective in like um, where we fit on the food chain, <laughs> which was kind of neat. And so I liked all of that. And that was that was what I was so hungry for. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of people really identified that. Uh, you know. No, I think I think I think that's really true. I, I'd add to that. I think that the dinosaur media up to that point could really have been split in, into two categories. Because you're absolutely right, there was a bunch of, of dinosaur kid stuff. Some of it wonderful. I also have incredibly fond memories of, of The Land Before Time. Mm -hmm. That's this is a great, 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 great film too. Um, but then there's also the ones that were not intended necessarily for kids. They were just really, really dumb. <laughs> I'm thinking about some of the, like, the, the Harryhausen uh, films, One Million Years BC. I wouldn't categorize that as being intended uh, for kids. I don't think that's why Raquel Welsh is there. Mm -hmm. um, but it, 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 was, it, was a, it was a very a dumb, very, very B-movie take uh, on dinosaurs. And you're right, Jurassic Park was the, the first one that gave you, I think, a really smart take uh, on, on dinosaurs. Um, the other thing I would say is, and I think this is something that has been forgotten as the Jurassic Park franchise has moved on, and that was that the original Jurassic Park was very much so selling to you the Jurassic Park experience. That is, wouldn't it be incredible to see living dinosaurs, to see dinosaurs brought back uh, to life? And we can't do that with genetic uh, engineering, but we can do that to some extent through the magic of, of Hollywood, mm -hmm. through uh, CGI, and through, through, through great uh, special uh, effects. And so there are lots of scenes in the original Jurassic Park that the people don't even need to be there, or they're just there to give you a sense for scale. And there are scenes where the dinosaurs are just sort of being dinosaurs and you get to sit back and you get to have confidence that what's going on is, in, in many cases, the most realistic depiction of dinosaurs that anyone could put together up to that point in time. It's really selling you a time travel experience. Like, this is what it would be like. And if you think about that, you know, the lawyer's right. You can you can charge whatever you want, and, and people uh, will pay it. I think that is why the first Jurassic Park became a true cultural phenomenon, and everything else has just sort of been uh, nostalgia trying to feed back off of that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Definitely. Yeah. It was. I like that it was believable. 
it really yeah. felt possible even though i think I, the more anybody picks away at it that you find that it is not and it hasn't been and it's been proven that it's unlikely and it will ever be something that could put even possibly done but it felt so likely <laughs> that everybody everybody for 10 years are like well it's just around the corner we'll do this and uh <laughs> and whether they were you know it well advised on believing that or not i don't know but yeah it felt different than watching other things like this looked like a glimpse into the future in a way in in the most ridiculous sentence i ever said but it <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it was believable in that respect so you remember the uh, the book of the intestine was there any other things that <laughs> from the novel that stick out in your memory that uh, uh there is, this is just just the the dumbest story um and it is going to make me seem like i'm i'm so so very old um but i remember being there's so much incredible technology in jurassic park right all oh, the electric fences and they're cloning uh dinosaurs and there's the motion sensors are all across the entire park and all this stuff but in i i don't know if it's in like the very first chapter but pretty close to that there's a fax machine <laughs> Dr. Alan Grant gets an image faxed over to mm. him. And as a little kid, I recall being blown away by that concept, which was just, you know, a totally ridiculous thing to be uh, impressed by. You know, we had televisions and all this other stuff, all this other incredible technology, but I never encountered a fax machine. And I just thought that was the <laughs> coolest thing, that you could send an image from one place and it wind up uh, some somewhere else. Yes, yeah, so a fax of an X-ray, and then he was able to positively identify Procomsignathus by the number of vertebrae in its tail, I think is okay. how that story goes. So <laughs> some fascinating leaps of logic there. The part of technology that's in the book that surprises me that I still can't quite figure out, in their in their car, in the Land Cruisers, there's, there are monitors. And on those monitors, um, the control room is able to beam information to them on like population studies and stuff like that, uh, which I don't know how they were doing. Like, I don't know... If it, I, I don't know how they were sending messages from the control room into the car in 1989. I can't make that work. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so um, that part of technology, in, I don't quite understand. In the novel, are, are the cars running on the, the track in the center of the highway? Is that still a thing? Yes. Okay. Okay. But I don't know if it was Ethernet track. <laughs> I don't right. know. What... Um, so that, that part was fascinating to me. I still can't quite wrap my head around, but it's, it works. Um, and obviously having like... Uh, a, a monitor in your car at that time would have been unheard of. I mean, back then it was even having a phone in your car was pretty exciting. Sure, and the phone was enormous. <laughs> yeah, it was a briefcase. So I was perusing some of uh, the publication titles. I haven't read uh, a lot of the, the papers that you're on, but I read some of the sure. subject matters. And okay. uh, it seems that you found a very interesting niche relating to dinosaur locomotion and, uh, and spent a lot of time with dinosaur trackways. And uh, mm -hmm. perhaps the, the muscle attachment, attach, attachments on the tail, and uh, how that influences how they how they moved around. How did you find yourself in that sphere of studying? You know how fast dinosaurs could chase each other. Oh, okay. So um, I, I I worked as a museum docent at the Glen Rock Paleon Museum uh, throughout uh, undergraduate. And I just recall that one day I was in the museum uh, helping to put together a display on the carnivorous dinosaurs of, of the Morrison, in which we've got three basic varieties. We've got um, allosaurids and megalosauroids and, and stratosaurids. Um, and one way that you can very easily distinguish them is the shape of their tailbones, their, their caudal vertebrae. Okay. Um, 
and I recall uh, asking uh, why. We, we knew that there were these differences between them, and we were putting the different tail vertebrae up on display, but there was no functional explanation to, to go along with the anatomical differences. Why does this animal have a tail like this? Why does this one have a tail like that? Why did this change over time, uh, etc.? And that just sort of stuck with me, such that when it was time to uh, approach graduate school advisors, this is something that if you want to go on to grad school, you do. You email potential advisors and say, hey, I like to do this. Are you accepting graduate students? And then you have to fill out an application and usually give them a pitch for the study that you want to conduct. Most of the time, that's not the study that you wind up uh, doing, but the advisors want to make sure you can sort of uh, uh, pitch them an idea that you understand enough about the scientific process to outline how, in theory, uh, you might do something. Um, and I, I pitched uh, Dr. Phil Curry at the University of Alberta the idea of looking at the function behind specifically theropod carnivorous dinosaur uh, tails. Um, and, and he liked it. He accepted me as, as a graduate student. And then I started to sort of uh, modify uh, that idea. So that's, that's, that's how it came about, just noticing something that was weird. And I think that's how a lot of really um, a neat uh, and passionate research uh, gets done. Some scientists just start scratching their head and goes, huh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. And it, and so you started looking into that and I did, I did. And as it, as it turns out and this, this, the basic concept here has absolutely uh, been, been worked out and understood before that a major function of tails in, uh, in, in reptiles, is that there's a big muscle at the base of the tail called the caudofemoralis. Um, and that muscle is actually a highly, highly modified limb muscle because even though it sits at the base of the tail, it has got an attachment uh, that runs up to the femur to the upper leg bone. And so when this muscle contracts, it pulls back on the femur. Or if your leg is firmly planted, it pulls the animal forward. And if you ever go to a uh, if you go to a restaurant uh, here in Charleston, or you go to eat gator tail in Alabama, you order the gator tail. The the the, the tail, the big muscle that's there, the medius part of an alligator of any crocodilian is is going to be that called a femoralis. It's the primary hind limb uh, retractor. Hmm. And if you ever get yourself a rear view on a gator or of a Komodo dragon or basically any lizard, you can see that the tail bulges outwards from the hip. That big bulge is that major uh, limb muscle that's there. So I performed a bunch of dissections on modern day reptiles measuring how big this muscle was. Um, and I figured out a way to sort of calculate its size based on the proportions of the tailbones themselves. And once we got something that basically worked for estimating it in crocodilians and diverse tails like in chameleons or in basilisk lizards, which are bipedally running lizards, um, then we applied that to, to dinosaurs. And we discovered that, well, in the case of Tyrannosaurus, the, the relative size, the proportional size of the cardiofemoralis muscle was not as big as what you see in the Komodo dragon or in a crocodilian. It was way the heck bigger. Okay. If you pause for a second, that should surprise no one uh, because, of course, Tyrannosaurus is a far more active, far more athletic animal uh, than is a Komodo dragon, than is uh, a crocodile. It's not surprising. It has got a larger investment in uh, the primary hind limb uh, retractor. And it, obviously, the other animals would have been quadrupedal, and uh, 
and a Tyrannosaur well, would not a, be. Well, a lot of them, of a... course, there are uh, certainly some bipedal uh, herbivorous dinosaurs. There's some uh, herbivorous dinosaurs that are also facultatively bipedal, so they walk around on all, all fours, but when it comes time to, to run, well, they hightail it. They rear back onto just their, their back legs, and then, then they run along. That's, that's probably how at least most of the, uh, the hadrosaurs uh, would have done it. So if you're a duckbill dinosaur being pursued by a Tyrannosaur, you're probably moving about uh, on your back legs. Mm -hmm. I know in the novel that there is a hadrosaur stampede, which is adapted okay. as the ornithomy the gallimimus stampede in the movie. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, in in the book, the tyrannosaur chases, uh, it charges after them. Whereas I think in the film, it's kind of like just erupts out of the, of the jungle, um, which is so we get some tyrannosaurus running in it. And uh, obviously in the movie, I think it chases the Jeep as well. And so it's going, mm -hmm. um, the book says, uh, the park warden, Robert Muldoon says the big Rex can outrun the Jeep. Uh, the best it will be able to do on the open train is 30 or 40 miles an hour. And the tyrannosaur quote, he'll run us right down. No problem for him. So when you, when you look at a, a tyrannosaur's tail and its legs and, and you're thinking about it running is, is 40 miles an hour, like a little crazy. Or is it... I think I think 40 miles per hour is is too high. Uh, now there are sort of different schools of thought on this, and I point out to all the listeners here, I am actually in the minority camp um, that thinks Tyrannosaurus, even big Tyrannosaurus Rex, even the biggest one that's out there, is still very much so capable of running. Mm -hmm. There there are two two sort of camps here. There is one camp that looks at Tyrannosaurus and goes from a physics perspective. Uh, there are so many issues with an animal this huge being able uh, to run that it seems uh, impossible. And then there's a camp that looks at tyrannosaurs from an ecological perspective and says, for such a large predator that would have such a hard time sneaking up on prey, it is ecologically infeasible for this animal to be incapable <laughs> of running after prey. Because how, how does that work? How do you have a carnivore that, that cannot uh, run? Um, so there, there's two schools of thought on that. I am absolutely in uh, the the minority group that, that thinks Tyrannosaurus is capable of running. I don't think it can do uh, 40 miles per hour. Um, I would not, however, uh, be surprised if it turns out Tyrannosaurus Rex can do uh, 30 miles per hour. Okay, right on. So I don't I don't think it can catch catch you in uh, a jeep, but I sure as heck think it could catch you on foot. I think collective, uh, like the we uh, of uh, the colloquial people think of Tyrannosaurus hunting and we think of the 45 foot long, eight ton monster, but for most of a Tyrannosaurus life, it would still be maturing into that size. And I've heard of the idea that the juvenile Tyrannosaurus actually filled an entirely different ecological niche because um, they would have been rapacious hunters as well. Um, when they were a bit smaller, might they have had a, more abilities perhaps in terms of being more yes. nimble, do you think? Absolutely. So my uh, my PhD thesis actually looked at the proportions of the leg bones across theropod evolution. Um, and, and if you want to estimate roughly how fast the critter is, um, to what extent they are adapted for high speed, you take a look at the proportions of the leg bones. To be a fast runner, you want to have long shins. And because dinosaurs stand on their toes, you want to have long foot bones. And tyrannosaurs are, for their size, incredibly leggy. 
They've got really, really uh, long legs. But as you say, that is something that changes proportionately over ontogeny or, or over the animal's okay. uh, lifespan. A teenage tyrannosaur, a juvenile tyrannosaur, has got proportionately longer shins than does a big adult. And that's partially because when you're really, really big, you can't afford to be walking on stilts because you're in danger of, of snapping them. Um, so that changes as the animals uh, increase in size. But yes, a young tyrannosaur, and of course a young tyrannosaur plays a major part uh, in, in the novel, yeah. um, would, from a, a human perspective, probably be even scarier than the big adult because it would be that much faster, and both of them are sufficiently large to, to, to chomp you in one bite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think having something that rustles you a little bit more as opposed to just like one fell swoop is a lot scarier, I think. Because <laughs> you, you, you think you get a bit of hope that you might have to fight it off. <laughs> and I think that hope is a dangerous thing in that respect. And I think in the novel, yeah, he does fight it off a little bit until he gets tired of them and it eats them. But... So in terms of an arms race, it looks like you were comparing the herbivores as well to the, uh, to the, to the theropods in terms of how they run as well. So you mentioned a bit about the hadrosaurs. Were they going to be outrunning or outpacing? Because uh, they were big as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So first off, when I looked at theropod dinosaurs, I didn't just look at tyrannosaurs. I looked across the, basically every theropod specimen we could we could find and we could get data for that had a, a, a complete or nearly complete uh, leg. And one thing we saw was an actual uh, uh, statistically significant evolutionary trend suggesting that over time, by and large, theropod dinosaurs did get better at running. That is, they got faster relative to whatever their size uh, was. And I sort of anticipated that going along with that, we would see a true evolutionary arms race, such that when we looked at the bipedal herbivorous dinosaurs, uh, we would see that they were also uh, getting faster. And what was going on here is that the carnivorous dinosaurs were running fast to keep up with the the, the herbivorous ones, they were running fast in order to outrun the ever faster tyrannosaurs, and it was sort of spiraling like that. Well, that turned out to not be the case. Okay. Um, in the case of the uh, herbivorous dinosaurs, uh, we did not find anywhere close to statistical evidence. Instead, it was just sort of expanding uh, diversity. There were some that were faster, there were some uh, that were uh, slower. In the case of the duckbill dinosaurs, they're nowhere near fast enough in terms of their maximum sprint speed, in terms of the length of their legs to uh, outrun the maximum speed of a tyrannosaur. Mm -hmm. But they do, I think, have another trick up their sleeve. They've got another approach to this problem because the attachment site for their caudal femoralis is much further down on the femur. And that means they've got incredible uh, leverage. They've got a big mechanical advantage and we associate that probably with duckbill dinosaurs, in addition to being able to ramp up to their top speed a little bit uh, faster, uh, being able to maintain uh, uh, a running speed for a longer period of time. In other words, they've got increased endurance. Whereas uh, the weak mechanical advantage that, that most theropod dinosaurs have got would make them potentially very good burst runners they could go really really fast for a while but then they would tire themselves out very easily this is the way cats are so big cats today <laughs> have got really ex explosive fast speed but they tire themselves uh, out and and you know a cheetah can easily outrun um a, a wildebeest or a, a stallion zebra or a gazelle but all those herbivores uh, can keep up the pace for much much longer so if you imagine a tyrannosaur duckbill dinosaur race 
The winner is determined based on how long the race runs. In a short sprint, Tyrannosaur easily beats the duckbill. Mm -hmm. But in a longer race, in a couple of rounds across the track or in a marathon, the advantage definitely goes to the slower but steadier duckbill dinosaur. Interesting. Well, I'm sure it all worked out fine because they uh, they lasted a long time. <laughs> they, they, they did, they did. And, and you know, you look at the most common um, big herbivores in in Africa today. Although there's lots of different strategies, there are warriors with big horns and there are big crested uh, porcupines. Uh, you see that the most those common, most successful ones have got this endurance running um, strategy. So, in terms of uh, another types of arms race, I was um. Wondering what you think about the the I was reading a paper or, or a hypothesis on the tyrannosaur arms, and the idea was that the selective pressure that would have them evolve into being short and out of the way may have been linked to um, tyrannosaurs being especially uh, dangerous in a feeding frenzy, so that perhaps the ones that would, uh, had smaller arms got their arms bit off less <laughs> uh, when they were in groups. Uh, jostling for for bites at a carcass how does how does that idea uh sit with you um well i i don't particularly uh like it okay. you know there have been a lot of, of theories over the years put out there to try to explain the weirdness of tyrannosaur uh reduced limbs mm -hmm. now as as it turns out amongst their pod dinosaurs that's not really all that weird reduced forelimbs have evolved multiple times and indeed, in the theropod lineage, it really doesn't take a long time before the arms start to be uh, very much so uh, reduced. But Tyrannosaurus, of course, is an extreme. It's got proportionately even shorter arms than something like uh, an Allosaurus. It is roughly on par with what you see in a, an Abelosaur like, like Carnotaurus, you know, Carnotaurus is a little bit uh, mm. stumpier still. Anyway, um, I don't happen to think that the short arms of Tyrannosaurus uh, need a very complex uh, explanation. I think it's simply a use it or lose it bit of Darwinian uh, economics. Okay. Um, I think that Tyrannosaurus is also probably redistributing the weight that would be present in those arms, redistributing the weight in the form of the very, very large, massive head. If you look at the evolution of um, Tyrannosauroids, as the head gets bigger, as the jaws swell out, you see that the forelimbs shrink up and the animals lose uh, a digit. So I think that that's just sort of a matter of keeping it of keeping it balanced. I just thought of it now. Maybe this sounds stupid. Pardon me. We'll see how this goes. Maybe the arms stayed the same size and they just grew up beyond them. <laughs> Maybe they didn't so actually that, shrink the arms. Is that possible? That, that has been suggested that that is sort of how, how it went down developmentally. But understand that that still merits some sort of special uh, explanation. Yes. So there still has to be some selective pressure, probably, for the arms to not be increasing alongside uh, mm. everything else. Uh, and also, it's, it's worth noting that there are animals like uh, like uh, Eutyrannus uh, that do that are still large-bodied uh, and, and have um, proportionately normal forelimbs mm. uh, for. Uh, for a theropod. Plus, they reduced digits too, didn't they? They didn't. Uh... Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. So like there yeah, was. Yeah. The, the, the Tyrannosaur salute is your <laughs> index finger and, and your thumb. Is that right? The other digits have been lost. So, in terms of talking about tails and how tails play a big role in, mm -hmm. in interpreting uh, 
the dinosaurs. I like to like look at birds and and mostly when they're on a branch or on the ground because uh, they look more like dinosaurs then than when they're flying. But uh, I I think of of how their behavior might be dinosaur like, and it's it's you know an act of imagination to think that you know how they move might be analogous to how a non-avian dinosaur might move too. But um, the big hang-up I have with it is that birds don't have two things that dinosaurs have in, in spades, and that's these huge tails and, uh, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, teeth. <laughs> and so these are two major differences that will significantly affect uh, a dinosaur's behavior, I would imagine, versus what a bird does. Um, in your observations, are there any like modern analogs to work with? Like you said you were studying crocodiles and Komodo dragons and, and things like that to look into the tails, but even, I mean... <sighs> thinking about how dinosaurs might have run, it would have been so different from what we have in terms of scale, but in terms of like, we don't have a lot of bipedal running things <laughs> in the it's world. Absolutely, absolutely right. The The mammalian world is really, really um, lacking in, uh, in functional bipeds. And in part, that's actually probably because we don't have tails, uh, because our mammalian lineage has lost the femoralis. Uh, musculature. And so in mammals, the back legs are not particularly overpowered relative to the front limbs. That's different from how it is in, um, it's different from how it was in in dinosaurs. It's different how it is uh, in most reptiles. And that is why your fastest lizards today, they run bipedally. Mm -hmm. It seems really counterintuitive, right? You want to run super fast, so you stop using a set of your legs. (laughs) And you do it because the back legs are overpowered with the big tail muscles and you get a, a greater bang for your buck if you lengthen the, the back legs. So your back legs tend to be um, oversized relative to your front limbs. If you, if you Google a picture of a, a basilisk lizard, again, a bipedally running lizard, you'll see it's got much, much longer back legs than, it front, than its front legs. It looks kind of silly uh, mm-hmm. when it's just standing around, but, but looks uh, incredibly elegant uh, while it's running. And some animals like that uh, might ultimately be a, a reasonably good uh, analog to consider alongside um, uh, birds as, as, a, as a biomechanical model for dinosaurs and, and dinosaur motion. Mm-hmm. I suppose anytime you're trying to think about behavior that it's going to be very, very challenging to, to say with any authority, but... Uh... It is. And of course, you know, different animals use their tails for very uh, different different things. Uh, and it's certainly true for, for dinosaurs. Um, spinosaurus, right? We're all now very, very excited about comparing the tail of Spinosaurus to the tails of, of crocodilians. So, you know, this is a tail that really looks like it's, it's adapted to help the animal swish back and forth uh, in, in the water. Is it laterally compressed in the same way? Does it have similar uh, musculature to it? Does it have a similar degree of uh, flexibility? So that's a great analog, right? We were all really happy thinking about the front end of Spinosaurus being like crocodiles, and then the back end, we just sort of forgot about it, in, in part because we didn't have a lot of good uh, tail vertebrae to, uh, to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, when we're thinking about dinosaurs using their tails as defensive weapons, we can look at critters uh, like like iguanas that will actively swat you uh, with, with their tails. Uh, the Australian animal that we mentioned earlier, Leonosaurus, we now think, if, if indeed the, the, the head and the other parts belong to the same animal, uh, <laughs> we think it's got a really, really long uh, tail, yeah. incredibly long, uh, relative to the size of its body. Um, and to me, uh, those tail vertebrae look very similar to the tail vertebrae of a, a green iguana. So it would not surprise me if you got too close to a Leonosaurus, it would give you a good tail chop. 
Interesting. Would it be like a whip? But or would it be also like a... very, much, very much so in that case be a, a visual display structure. Interesting. It's, it's so outlandish in length. So one of the other things that uh, I spotted, uh, so my last uh, episode, I had um, Dr. Richard J. Letterer on as a, as a guest. He's a, an ornithologist. And mm-hmm. he uh, did the, 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 a study investigating the role of rectal bristles on um, a bird's face. Cool, yes. And I see that you have uh, co-authored a paper called Bristles Before Down. You guys actually cited Dr. Letterer's paper in, in one of your visits, which is so fascinating to have this, you know, this, uh, this, this small world kind of uh, present itself. But uh, I, so is it fair to ask you a question about a paper that came out that long ago? <laughs> Sure, sure. What, what, what's your question? Well, I'm just wondering. So the, the idea oh. was that um, you guys were, I, I guess, saying it feels unlikely that feathers were adapted for the sake of heat conservation. So what were they developed for? And so you guys are kind of investigating where they come from. And right. So that, that was very much so a theoretical paper. Let me make it very clear. This was not based on some new discovery where we found ourselves a non-avian dinosaur with facial bristles. That has not has not happened. Uh, I anticipate that it's going to happen at some point, but has not uh, happened uh, yet. Okay. Anyway, the idea was, you know, we're really, really uh, honing in on the adaptive sequence that leads to the development of flight feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're very happy now. I think most paleontologists are very happy saying that, well, before we had really, really super complex feathers that were useful as airfoils. We had simpler feathers that were just useful for parachuting out of trees. And before that, we had simpler still feathers, fans of feathers on the arms and on the tip of the tail that were just used as display structures. And so that gives you a nice evolutionary ramp sort of increasing the complexity of feathers and the concentration of feathers to give you wings. And then before that, we're all super happy saying that the original function behind a coat of feathers was for insulation, to hold in body heat. Now, the feathers does other things. It can provide you with lightweight armor, gives you some protection from UV and things like that. Sometimes it can make for great camouflage, but, but by and large, the major reason for having a covering of, of insulation uh, is is to to deal with um, to deal with heat to prevent you from losing all the body heat that that you create. We're all happy with that. And the argument that we made in the bristles before down paper is, yeah, but we still need a little bit more of a ramp mm-hmm. in order to get you to that point because before a covering of hair like feathers is useful for insulation, it's got to be present in a pretty thick concentration. You've got to have enough of them so they're actually trapping a layer of warmed air, right? What good for insulation is one or two or three or five uh, little hairs? Mm -hmm. They don't do uh, any good. So you've got to have those present. And, you know, when paleontologists have thought about the origin of hair in in proto-mammals, one of the very obvious sort of first steps to get you up to insulation is to say, well, what about whiskers? You could have these little facial structures that we know lots and lots of mammals have got. In fact, we know that many mammals that have otherwise greatly reduced some of their covering, particularly in burrowing animals, they still maintain some reasonably large uh, whiskers. 
Our whiskers just give you a little bit of tactile uh, information. You don't have to have uh, a lot of them in order for them to serve that function. So maybe your proto-mammal starts out there, these little hair-like things coming up there on its snout, gives it a little bit more information about what's going into its mouth, what's around its face, which is useful uh, stuff to know. Um, and then that concentration builds up a little bit. You've got your genes down for, for giving you these structures. They start to get a little bit longer, and finally they're trapping a little bit of air, warm air, around your face. That's good because you tend to lose a lot of heat from your face, so it's a great place to start off having insulation. And then from there, it can just increase and spread across the body. And so it'd be really nice if you could apply that same adaptive scenario, that same ramp, to the origin of hair-like protofeathers uh, in dinosaurs. And when you look at modern-day birds, you do see that birds have got feathers that are analogous um, to whiskers um, on, on mammals. They've got these facial bristles, and one major function of which is to give you some sort of tactile uh, sensitivity. Um, and we went, uh, I'll say, we also went a step further in that paper and pointed out that there is actually another instance where we think the same exact scenario has, in fact, uh, played out. And that is amongst uh, some insects, where insects have got hair-like structures sticking out of their exoskeleton that provides them with very, very important tactile sensitivity. Because if you're covered up with an exoskeleton, you can't feel what's around you. You've got to have a structure for that. And in some insects like hawk moths, They've developed a very dense covering of these hair-like structures that hold in the heat, that keep them insulated while the hawk moth's uh, wing muscles are so active and are generating so much heat. So we think we know of two instances where a, an insulating coat of hair-like structures has previously evolved. All we did was say, well, maybe it actually happened uh, three times. <laughs> That's amazing stuff. Yeah, what an interesting place to stop and spend time thinking and then so like what kind of uh if you're looking into the fossil record you're hoping to find rectal bristles perhaps on on a fossil where where might that come from where do you expect well, to the maybe best, find that? the best place to look has got to be um some of the incredible uh fossil beds and the great Lagerstätten deposits um in in china where we've gotten our original uh feathered uh dinosaurs uh my hope was that when that paper came out bunch of researchers would go back in, really pour over a lot of those specimens uh, and find some great examples of bristles. Mm -hmm. uh, that hasn't happened yet. Maybe that's because uh, they're not uh, out there. Uh, it may also be because you don't actually tend to find a lot of feathers preserved around the animal's uh, face on those specimens. You just sort of get the sort of outline across the body and the skull collapses and there are all these different uh, bones associated with the skull. It gets, gets pancaked. Um, uh, or, and, and also, I should point out, even if you did find that in those specimens, that wouldn't prove that our theory is right, because it could have been the case that those animals have already got a full insulating coat. Maybe they had that coat, and then some of those pre-existing feathers then got modified for the novel function of, mm -hmm. of serving as, as bristles. That's, that's totally possible. But that would be the first piece of evidence I'd like to see, is identifying some bristle-like structures in some of the known feathered dinosaurs. And then what you'd really have to do to, to prove that we're right, or to, you know, to, to come very close to proving that we're right, is to go back and find um, a super primitive dinosaur that doesn't have insulating feathers, but does preserve evidence of bristles. And I will say that that certainly has, has not been done. We don't know where to look for something like that in terms of that level of preservation. And we also really don't know if it exists. That is, we don't know if that thing 
was a dinosaur because we don't know how far down the dinosaur family tree mm-hmm. the origin of, of feathers, uh, simple hair-like feathers, actually goes. It has, of course, been argued that maybe that goes all the way down past dinosaurs uh, into the archosaur family tree at the point where uh, even uh, pterosaurs uh, diverge, mm-hmm. maybe even, even further down than that. I, and I think that that uh, challenge of actually determining where on the archosaur family tree or the archosaur morph family tree uh, feathers originated is one of the big questions in dinosaur paleontology right mm-hmm. now. And of course, the pterosaurs had the, these filaments as well. Do you think that it might have been right. come from the from the same roots, or do you think they might well, have independently? Well, that, that that is the reason why I called out uh, yeah. the branching point of pterosaurs as potentially being the site for the origin of feathers. But that's a, that's a very controversial idea, and and well, it should be because we don't have the fossil evidence to uh, to back it up. We we do not know what a, a proto pterosaur uh, really and truly uh, looks like. Mm-hmm. And that would be a strange animal <laughs> one of the things when we were emailing before and we, i don't mm-hmm. know we didn't get to this about uh, the tales earlier but i was um in the new section i was mentioning how we have the the story of the allosaurus with the the injury in its pubis bone <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you were saying I, I mentioned it to you he said not only do i know about it it's my profile picture <laughs> where is that allosaur and what's this what's the story with that one sure so that allosaurus uh, is on display at uh, the Glenrock Paleon Museum in the small town of, of Glenrock, uh, Wyoming. And if you go there, you can see the allosaur. There's, less, there's more to that injury than just the spike wound, right? Um, because if you look up throughout the skeleton, you can actually see evidence of infection that probably began with that wound and spread throughout the skeleton. There's some really, really nasty, horribly gross vertebrae above the hips that become uh, fused together and develop these ugly, bony uh, outgrowths uh, on them. Really nasty stuff. I feel I feel terrible for this poor uh, skewered Allosaurus. Uh, it lived for a long time a- after that wound. Ugh. But do know that you won't see uh, the original uh, pubic boot where it's got the injury on that specimen. That's mounted uh, with a cast, um, and I, uh, the, the pubis itself, I, write, I, I believe, is under study right now in the care of Dr. Robert Bach. Oh wow, that's neat. That's really cool. And there's an, uh, just another example of uh, the tails being. Being fancy. Did you have you looked into Stegosaurus? Stegosaurus has an incredible uh, tail, incredibly flexible. It's got these adaptations on what we call the caudal ribs or or transverse processes, if if you like. I'll call them caudal ribs that stick out, and then they've got uh, this broad surface to them at the very base of the tail. And I'm pretty sure that broad surface is for the attachment of really big tail muscles that are responsible for swinging the tail. Uh, side to side. Mm-hmm. Stegosaurus, by the way, is also basically the only um, ornithischian dinosaur that doesn't have what we call ossified tendons. Okay. Uh, ossified tendons run across the back vertebrae. In most um, beaked herbivorous dinosaurs, they're there to keep the back stiff and probably to provide a little bit of extra elastic rebound as the animal is moving about. Mm-hmm. Stegosaurus doesn't have that because Stegosaurus uh, needs to maintain a tail that's super duper flexible, that it can curl and lash around in order to get you. Wow. I didn't realize it was that flexible. That's in, that's really strange. Mm-hmm. Not that there was anything normal about Stegosaurus, but <laughs> that's really, really strange. Well, I'll have to go and find that museum, too. I got this big uh, trek I have to do through the Badlands one of these days. Or years or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just about out of time. I really appreciate this. Okay. Thanks for coming along and, uh, and for joining in. I love talking about dinosaurs. Well, good luck on... Uh, 
your trip to the Lance Formation. That should be a good All time. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, chat again after you've got a little further through the book. Okay. I'm down for that. All right. Absolutely. Well, a very big, big, big thank you to Dr. Scott Persons. I really appreciate it. Uh, you were fantastic. What a good uh, what a good guest. Thank you so much. All right, the text. Uh, this week's text is Control, another chapter named Control, spanning from pages 218 to 220. Just a quick little one. In the synopsis, Harding, Sattler, and Gennaro follow the compies through the park, but just as they're about to discover the compies were scavenging on Dennis Nedry and find the stolen jeep with the rocket launchers in it, they are summoned back to the visitor center so Muldoon can use the jeep. Meanwhile, John Arnold begins his unenviable task of searching through the computer's code to undo what Dennis Nedry's done. Characters. We have Dr. Harding, the, the person with no first name. He drives the jeep through the park on page 218, and Harding initially senses no emergency. He has zero indication or intuition that anything is amok at the moment, though he probably should be mentioning the downed trees that have impeded their progress, or at least emotionally be carrying the weight of the responsibility to report this in, but he's fairly carefree in this moment. Uh, Though Sadler adeptly translates the garbled transmissions from Arnold in control, Harding requests further clarity from Arnold. There's, quote, no mistaking the tension in Arnold's voice, so Harding obviously senses it, too, but he explains that Arnold's a warrior and opts to resist offering help because Arnold, I guess, commonly asks for help unnecessarily? I don't know why Harding is such a jerk. Uh, In any case, Sattler's interpretation leads to helping eventually getting sent into the park. In any case, Sattler's interpretation leads to help eventually getting sent into the park to rescue everyone else. Dr. Ellie Sattler, she spots a light up ahead, which we know is Muldoon's Jeep with the rocket launchers that Nedry stole on page 218. And Ellie has a particular ear for interpreting garbled transmissions after years of operating the radio phone on expeditions with Dr. Grant. Her paleobotany skills are coming through. She translates effectively. She interprets the situation perfectly well for Harding. John Arnold. He radios the jeep, desperate to get his hands on a vehicle to retrieve the tourists from the park, but the radios don't have a strong connection, and much of the message is lost in transmission. On page 218, Arnold keeps cool during Hammond's outbursts and remains fairly respectful and calm while being yelled at. And this is a matter of Arnold's perspective. To Arnold, Hammond's outbursts are, quote, like every other management guy Arnold has ever seen. On page 219, Hammond doesn't understand the technology technical issues, and he thinks that screaming is the way to make things happen. Arnold believes that that may motivate people, but computers don't care if they're screamed at. Screaming won't motivate a computer, a program, or a system. John Arnold is unfazed by Hammond's explosive emotional outbursts because he believes not in the people of Jurassic Park, but the program, the quote, hell of a system that he has faith in. The system is control, and with the system, they will restore control to Jurassic Park. He's accepted that Nedry won't be coming back, meaning Arnold will have to review the computer code and see what's gone wrong, which will be a painstaking job, we're told on 2.20. He knows that he'll have to be calm and careful, so he aims to remove any barriers from allowing him to be those things. John Hammond, for example. He suggests that Hammond go to the cafeteria, and he'll notify him when there's news. Hammond warns that he wants the place under control, that he cannot have a Malcolm effect here, which Arnold dismisses, and asks to, quote, let me go to work, which draws Hammond's ire. Arnold remains calm and polite, despite being cussed at by Hammond. Robert Muldoon. When Harding and the Jeep arrive back at the visitor center, Muldoon is shouting and waving his arms to get that Jeep right away. John Hammond. Hammond's mood swings are mentioned in Bungalow on page 198, and they return here, and he's just irate. It stuns Henry Wu. 
He's said to be stamping his little feet on page 219, which gives a feeling like he's a child throwing a fit. And Hammond says he doesn't want a, quote, Malcolm effect here on page 220. And as Arnold is obviously trying to get Hammond out of the control room, Hammond cusses directly at him. Dr. Henry Wu. Wu hasn't seen Hammond this irate before, and he's totally stunned. Wu is more of a computer guy than a science experiment guy, as portrayed in the film. He steps forward at the end of the chapter to support Arnold in his work on 220, and he knows that inspecting each line of code, more than a half million, mostly undocumented, without explanation, will, quote, take forever. Localities. The Hipsy Paddock. Harding reports that they are one mile north of the Hipsy Paddock on page 218, which is near the river. Uh, stylistic techniques. Italics. God damn it, Arnold, you son of a bitch. God damn it, get this park back on track now. Get my grandkids back here now on 219. Obviously, Hammond is furious. The wrath of God, right? He's screaming and stamping his little feet. Colon. Quote, more crackling than colon. Need your car on 218. Here the colon presents an object in the statement, which is a fractured transmission, which indicates that the gas-powered Jeep is required back at control. Then, colon, need your car now, on page 219. In this sentence structure, the colon is introducing an article to the sentence, uh, and that's the transmission. And it, uh, it, could, it could equally be in a sentence like uh, presenting a graph or presenting an object uh, in this case it's this transmission and transmission is for your interpretation because it's a little bit garbled semicolon it was going to be a painstaking job semicolon he'd need to be calm and careful here two clauses are connected by the semicolon written in arnold's perspective as a systems engineer in this case he's identifying the scope of his project figuring out what had gone wrong and the assets required to complete the project he'd need to be calm and careful it's a very on-brand perspective for a systems engineer Crichton ex executes his personality and character well. Ellipsis. John, say again, please. Ellipsis. We've seen this before where the ellipsis is encouraging a response and that gap is waiting for a response. So the silence to be read into the sentence is an empty space and it's inviting for you to say something back. We get a bunch of end dashes that are interrupting transmissions or sentences. Quote, you there? Need your car. Where are you? No, damn well, get back here, ow. There is enough written in these sentences that we, we know what's being said, but it's clear that the radio transmission isn't strong. It adds to the confusion and creates a viable reason why nobody can get organized and regain control of the park. And then, Muldoon, need your car, ow. Other, stuck. Muldoon, wants, car. Not, listen, crazy bastards, car. Edry, has, Sing one on page 219. Arnold's language and insistence shows the desperation probably to find Nedry out in the park rather than to help tourists because, as far as anyone knows, the tourists presently are fine, just stuck out in the park for the past half hour. Which is wrong, but uh, it's just uh, their perspective for now. Metatext. We get some computer codes showing what Arnold is looking at on page 220. And this is presented in a slightly, almost negligibly smaller font, but it's surely smaller by size or two. And I won't pretend to know what the computer language means, but apparently it's so Arnold can see behind the scenes inside the computer's code. And this code indicates the line-by-line -line instructions on how the computer is to behave. Literary techniques. We have a metaphor. Quote, technical systems were completely indifferent to all this explosive human emotion. 
on page 220. Humans are often said to, quote, explode with emotion when they have an outburst, whether it's anger, sadness, extraordinary joy, any case where they can no longer contain themselves. In this metaphor, the qualities of an explosion, that is, shattering violently or bursting apart, is transferred to Hammond's emotions, in that his emotions are generally contained, but upon explosion, they burst apart or shatter violently. Now, it's not that his emotions are bursting, but rather that they are bursting out of Hammond, but not literally. His emotions are shattering violently the self-control that Hammond usually abides by. So here, Hammond is out of control. Dramatic irony. Doctors Harding and Sattler and Gennaro, not a doctor, spot a light, which we know is a jeep of Nedry left behind after he was attacked by the Dilophosaurus on 218. We know this, but the characters don't. This builds some tension, making us wonder what's going to happen. Will they find the jeep? It's right there. And then, just as they're about to discover Nedry, the compies and the lost jeep, they respond to Arnold's urgent request and turn around on 219. How bad... They could have used that confirmation on Nedry's status. That rocket launcher and the other jeep is immeasurable, and they'll never know how close they came. But we do. Motifs. The illusion of control. In this chapter, and perhaps earlier, though it went undetected by me in its subtlety, we get Hammond's explosive human emotion. As said earlier, the specific wording from John Arnold is, te quote, technical systems were completely indifferent to all this explosive human emotion. And as explicated from the metaphor earlier, uh, just a few moments ago, we know that these emotions are exploding out of Hammond's regularly contained mechanisms of self-control. These outbursts are another example of control being just an illusion, that when chaos strikes, which it inevitably will, even one's self-control is violently shattered or burst apart. This isn't necessarily true for all characters, but we've seen, obviously, Ed Regis lose all self-control during the Tyrannosaur attack. Now we're seeing Hammond losing his self-control now that his people and his park aren't obeying him. And remember, Hammond doesn't yet know that the dinosaurs are out of containment, and that his grandkids have been attacked, or that anyone has died yet. This is just how upset he is that he can't find Nedry to restore the system settings. Once again, he doesn't have control. As Spielberg's adaptation of Ellie Sattler aptly reminds us, you never had control. That's the illusion. Again, this reading is encouraged by Arnold's observation that human emotions are, quote, explosive. And the only one having explosive emotions is John Hammond. Discussion. And a little bit more here on the God Complex. Hammond's mood swings are first mentioned in Bungalow, and they return here. Uh, and he is irate. It stuns Henry Wu how angry he is. And he's said to be stamping his little feet on page 219, which gives us a feeling like he's a child throwing a fit. This inclusion of the adjective little to his feet significantly detracts from the power of his actions and language, devolving his commands into this feeling like a child throwing a hissy fit. While Hammond may have delusions that he's God on this island, the creator, where his word is truth, here there is no fear of the wrath of Hammond or of being smote. John Arnold's fair and measured responses to Hammond's emotional outbursts suggest, well, Mr. Hammond, Muldoon's on his way out right now to do exactly that, which doesn't sound like someone pressured or under distress. And as far as anyone knows, beyond the systems being down, no harm has yet come to anyone. In fact, to Arnold, Hammond is, quote, like every other management guy Arnold has ever seen on page 219. He doesn't understand the technical issues, and they thought that screaming was the way to make things happen. Chaos theory. Again, Nedry's line about thinking of everything, everything except this damn storm, comes to mind. On page 218, a lightning flash coincides with a long sizzle of radio static, indicating that it is the storm and not Nedry's trapdoor, which is causing the interference in transmission 
on the radios. The storm plays a significant, coincidental role in this calamity in Jurassic Park. Now, my brother was just texting me about how radios should work, that there's no excuse for them to be dysfunctional here in Jurassic Park. And apparently, Crichton's explanation is that the lightning from the storm is causing the interference. And you can like that or not, but that's the explanation. Island layout. Harding reports that they are one mile north of the Hipsy Paddock on page 218. That's near the river. Recall, as you first entered the park on the tour, the first stop was the Hipsy Paddock. The second stop was the Dilophosaur enclosure. So we know that these are nearer one another, and apparently about a mile apart. Nedry made it about a mile out into the park, obviously heading out on the tour rather than heading to the East Dock. He almost certainly can now be said to have simply used the totally wrong road. He thought of everything except this damn storm and mapping out the route before you travel. He didn't think of that either. All right, that's a quick chapter today. Before we go today, I want to say thank you again to Dr. Scott Persons. I really appreciate it. I can't imagine that the Stegosaurus tale is even stranger than I thought it was to begin with. Uh, Just fascinating, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for a return performance from Dr. Scott Persons. He will have a surprise reappearance in episode 44. So that's coming up. It's uh, it's fun. Thank you, Scott. Again, um, I really, really appreciate it for everything. Thank you. And I want to sign off also thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Gamers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. Or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that. Until next time.